Welcome to Sweat to Technique, a podcast all about how to get better faster. I'm Ravi Gupta. And, you know, as you know, listeners, this is a podcast from former and current school principals all about how to apply lessons learned from the classroom to life outside of schools. And for people who've been listening for a while, you know, I hit one skill a year. I learn a new skill every year. And last year, my new skill or hobby was tennis. And I've been kind of obsessed with this game ever since. I I basically put down basketball because I'm getting older and getting injured playing basketball. And I started playing tennis. And I've read tons of books and watched tons of videos and worked with tons of coaches about how to be better at tennis. And there is one book that stood out from the rest. It's called Essential tennis by a man named Ian Westerman, along with a guy named Joel Chasnoff. And Ian's going to join us in a second. Ian is a master of teaching tennis. He has a YouTube page with nearly 300,000 subscribers. He's written, in my opinion, the best book on how to be better at tennis. He runs a company called Essential Tennis. It's all about how to teach people how to be great at tennis. But if you're a listener who doesn't like tennis or hasn't learned tennis yet, I think you're going to get something out of this because what Ian provides, and I think this was true of Rue Hill when we talked to him about surfing, is that you know people are really good at helping people become decent or great at a given skill, hobby, or sport. They do things that are generalizable outside of that hobby or sport, and that's definitely true of Ian. What we talk about in this conversation is you know, how to use video to guide instruction, how to think of becoming intermediate versus going intermediate to expert, and how much longer the ladder takes, and how do you think about that? How do you think about playing a game for enjoyment versus drilling? How do you think about your own ego and like the need to win and competitiveness versus trying to methodically learn the proper way to do things? How do you take paper learning and apply it to real life? How do you take drills and apply it to an actual game? How do you reflect on your own practice? Many of the subjects we talk about, we definitely get technical on tennis for sure, but you'll get a lot out of this. And I also think that if you don't play tennis and you're just thinking about new hobbies to take on, this will definitely give you a sense of what it takes to do it in a serious way later in life. And so with that, I want to welcome on Ian Westerman to this podcast. Thanks, Ravi. Hey, I'm super happy to hear that you enjoyed the book. It just came out about a year, year and a half ago, so it hasn't had a long time yet to get much exposure, and I'm just really grateful to hear feedback like that, so I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, it's funny. I found it by accident. I was in Mississippi. I was at Square Books, if you know Square in Oxford, like the best bookstore, I think, in the country, and you know, the algorithms hadn't fed it to me, even though it seems like you've got a, a big following for this book, which is what I learned later on, but I just happened to be perusing the Square Books, and it was just on display in Mississippi, and it was just at a time. It was weeks before my very first tennis tournament I ever did, and maybe this is a good starting point for the conversation, is that I started playing tennis at the beginning of last year and had never competed before. But three weeks ago, I joined an intermediate tennis tournament here at Prospect Park. Uh, and so I was kind of in training mode for that tennis tournament. And so I picked up your book and actually used, I was reading your book the morning I started this tennis tournament. I created a little checklist for myself uh, and it's super helpful. So we'll, we'll get into your book, but I, I find it so amazing. And there's there's like a pantheon of amazing tennis books. I think yours does such a great job of distilling like all the best of like 
the sort of approaches, the mental game, the sort of drilling and practice and how to like reflect on an actual full match to how do you just play and have fun with your friends. So I think you really cover a lot in that book. Uh, it's really kind of you. It was uh, honestly kind of our pitch to the publisher was you've got the inner game of tennis on one side, which is super like spiritual and like emotional and mental. And then there's Winning Ugly by Brad Gilbert is like super practical and, and tactical. And our goal was to kind of touch on all the big pillars of success in tennis and give the essentials for, for each one. So you, man, you just nailed the, the pitch. Thank <laughs> oh, <that>. thank you. <laughs> well, I'm going to separate this conversation into two parts. The first part is for everybody who's listening, who is not a tennis head. So I want to talk about sports generally. How do you tackle a new hobby? How do you get better at any sport right now? And I'll try to generalize it through tennis. We'll use tennis as the heuristic, but we'll try to be general in a way that even if you don't love tennis, we'll try to convince you. Even as a recent convert, I have a lot to say about why it's a great sport to learn later in life. And then in the second part, I'll get more technical and I'll try to be clear about when we go to that part. So let's start with the general side of things. And one thing that stands out to me in your approach is that you you started from what I understand as a tennis pro or or somebody teaching tennis in real life, but you have quickly realized that you can leverage the you know ever-changing nature of the internet and YouTube to reach so many more people. Tell me a little bit about that evolution and how maybe your approach changes from hey, I've got a client in front of me versus hey, I've got a like film something for, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who are going to see me on the internet. Yeah, definitely. Well, it started off as quality and not quantity in the sense that, yes, I, I graduated from college in 2004 for context. And so YouTube hadn't even been invented yet and podcasts weren't a thing yet like, at all. And I started teaching full time, which I thought was going to be my lifelong career. I was super passionate about tennis and I just wanted some kind of job that I could be around the game and figure out how to make a living from it. But I went in super naive, assuming that everybody who would sign up for my time and pay for a lesson would automatically, by default, have my same level of passion for the improvement process and stepping outside their comfort zone and trying new things and like making changes to, to have you know, maybe taking a step back now to take two steps forwards down the road. And I was shocked initially to find that that wasn't people's attitudes at all. And <laughs> I found myself giving a majority, vast majority of my lessons. People were telling me they wanted to get better. But then in their receptivity of like my suggestions, it was very clear that they deep down just wanted something that was very surface level and like a polish of what they already had. They didn't want to rock the boat too much because they had a match just three days from now that they wanted to play well. And so there was no way they were going to change their grip on their serve. And week after week after week, it just felt like I was in kind of like a crazy world of like people coming in with the same problems, telling me they wanted solutions, but not wanting to accept what I believed was the best answer and basically repeating the same thing over and over and over again. So that was ultimately what motivated me to start content was... I wanted to spend more and more of my time with people that valued the improvement process as much as I did and were invested, as invested as I was in how to get better and really master something as I was. So that's what pushed me into my podcast in 2008 and my YouTube channel in 2009. And it took me three years before I figured out how to start monetizing. And during that time, honestly, I was just really lit up by the emails <laughs> and messages I got from people who were like, 
this is amazing. Like, thank you so much. Like, can you please answer this question? And it was all about kind of building like-minded, like community first. And then as I realized, wow, there's actually a viable like business option around this. Then of course it became about scaling and growing the audience from there. And you know, how many videos, like do you, do you cut a video every week or more than that? Like how often do you get up there? <laughs> so over the years, so I've been doing it for 15 years now and I've made over 6,000 videos. Oh my God. And <laughs> 2,000 of them are for free on the Essential Tennis YouTube channel, which means the other 4,000 are all paid content. And so they're inside my over 30 courses that I've created over the years that, that target a particular problem or skill that tennis players would like to master. And then I go and break it down and go step by step and show people how to how to develop that skill. Incredible. And so you not only talk about the importance of video for you know your teaching, but also you talk about how if you're learning tennis, it's incredibly important to video yourself. So using tennis as an example, but obviously if people are learning basketball or they're learning golf or whatever surfing, which is something we've talked a lot about in this podcast. Video could be as important in any of those sports, but we'll talk about tennis. How should people go about this? Like video yourself and then do what with it? Like and video yourself in what context? Like playing a match, like doing a drill, like how should people even think about using video? And then let's think about like the beginner intermediate level here. Sure. Yeah. The core benefit is simply, we think we know what we're doing because it just seems to stand to reason that, well, it's my body, it's my racket, my surfboard, my golf club, whatever. If anybody knows like how I'm moving and if I'm smooth or if I'm jerky or if I have this grip or if I have that grip or if I'm leaning you know, to this side or to that side, well, of course, I must be able to, to recognize like what's happening in the moment. But there's a huge gap between what something feels like and what's actually happening in reality. And however big that gap is and however long it persists is, in essence, how long you're going to stay like stuck in the same core patterns of movement and habits and therefore a level of mastery and whatever it is you're trying to do. So these days, it's so easy, you know, with the devices we have in our pockets and to get a $15 tripod at Walmart or on Amazon to set up, point it in the general direction of whatever it is that you're performing hit the record button. And then in a nutshell, what I recommend people do is A, just consume the raw content and get over the initial shock of- How bad you look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Compared to what you were hoping you would look like. And especially if, if you're a maven in whatever the topic is, whatever the skill is, if you're really passionate about it and you've consumed a ton of content, especially of like elite performers, in whatever that skill is, you're going to have all these pictures of all the highlight reels that you've ever consumed. And whenever you hit your best wave or drive or drop shot, you're going to get a flashback of seeing the best person in the world executing that thing. And you're going to, it's going to feel in the moment, like certainly that was close, like for sure that was in the ballpark because I've never <laughs> done anything that felt that satisfying and like that pure in my entire life. And so the first time you see yourself move for real, there's an initial shock and I'm not going to like sugarcoat it for people because that would be a disservice. There's an initial shock of like, oh crap, it's not what I thought. But then from that initial moment of reckoning, it's all upside from there because not only can you use that as a kick in the butt to motivate yourself to go actually 
make changes, but now you can accurately figure out what the right changes are and you can prioritize. Well, I can see right off the bat, I'm not doing XYZ technique that I know I'm supposed to because my coach has told me to do it every time I've taken a lesson for the last like six months and wow, I'm still not doing it. Now, all of a sudden, you've got motivation, you have specificity, you have objectivity from like a, a third level perspective. And it's much, much easier to make big chunks of improvements very quickly once you're armed with all that information. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about it on this podcast before, but I haven't used video as much in tennis and I should. I mean, in rereading your book, it, it reminded me that I just needed to get out there. And I think like, when I was I was reflecting on surfing, which was the year before, it was mid-pandemic. And I was lucky enough to have this guy, Tommy Potterton, down in Costa Rica because I was down there for most of the pandemic. And he had just started a surf school. So basically, when I would paddle out, he would just take tons of video from the beach because he was kind of videoing this one section of the beach. And so I had this benefit of the first six months of my surfing, I have almost every wave I'd ever caught on video. I still have every one of them. And we used to say, you know, the videos for us and the, and the sort of stills are for Instagram. Like, you know, it's like you just take like a little still of it, put it on Instagram and the videos sometimes are horrifying, but you're right. Like even the other day I was practicing serves and the guy who was coaching me just started taking video. And what he would do is he would video me doing serves for a couple minutes and then he'd come over and he would show it to me. And he'd be like, this is what it looks like. And he was actually really smart in, in how he was doing this. He said, he didn't tell me what was wrong. He, I think at this point he felt like he had told me enough that I should be able to self-identify. So I would be like, oh, here's what I'm not doing right. My toss is too low or whatever. And I made a lot of progress really fast. And so I feel like even if you can get a friend to do it and you just keep looking at it or a coach, I feel like that, that can really work. Do you, as part of Essential Tennis, have people send in videos to you? Is that a service that you guys do or to your coaches and then where you guys will send back feedback? Yeah, I do. I don't do it in a one-off sense. I have a monthly membership program. Those online students are the only people that I ask for video of themselves. I just did that Q&A call earlier today. So weekly in there, I review videos, I answer questions, I give ongoing feedback to students. But most of what I do is in person with my in-person. If I just open it up and to the general public, go ahead, send me your video. That's all I would do all day, every day. So I try to try yeah. to put a filter in between so, so that I have time to work on other content as well. That makes sense. And so in thinking about like, you're essentially, you've built a, a tennis school, like a tennis academy. And there are obviously prominent in-person academies out there. Like, you know, Balotieri was like the famous like, I guess, original, maybe not the original, but the one that like people our age probably remember because of Andre Agassi. And now there's Nadal Academy, et cetera. What have you learned from the in-person elite academies out there? Like, obviously they're dealing with a whole other level of student than somebody like me, but like, have you been able to like sort of get a sense of what's working out there in real life and what have you sort of kept versus what can you obviously not recreate given the experience of people being in person? And I'm wondering, like, from the tennis perspective, if you kind of have developed like a scope and sequence from either your experience or from seeing like the elite schools out there of just like, all right, this is how you take somebody through a progression of tennis. Like there's a right way to do it as you see it. Yeah, sure. So I'll address the academy thing quickly and I'll kind of pivot from there. And the reason why I'm going to pivot relatively quickly is, A, I've never been to a name brand academy before as a student or as a coach. So you can take whatever I'm about to say next with a, with a grain of salt. 
it's just not something I've had the opportunity or made the time to do in the past. And based on my communications with students and with industry people, I, and I've been in the tennis industry for 30 years now, in general, and I, again, broad general like statement I'm about to make here, those places are kind of tennis factories. And it's like they're designed for efficiency. They're, they're designed to take a thousand people in on one end and then give them activity and movement and repetition over the span of three days or five days or seven days and come out the other end. And I don't mean this in like a disparaging way at all, especially since that's what most people want. And frankly, this is what motivated me to start doing my own thing. I'm not interested in providing repetition for repetition sake, even if that means like I'm saying coachy things and like making statements and yelling out phrases that are maybe technically true, but they might not actually fit the individual I'm feeding a ball to. But if there's another five people waiting in line for their ball, it's not practical for me to stop and like give some deep, insightful like piece of information to Sally when Steve is like waiting there for his backhand. So that's my general feel about what it's like, especially as an amateur player. If you're like an elite world-class, you know, competitor. I'm sure the experience is very different, but for normal people like you and I that would go and experience coaching there, it's more about volume and it's more about frequency than it is about depth. And that's my general, you know, kind of feeling and, and thought about it. So in terms of like coming up with a, a process, I think it's equal parts science and arts, uh, art in the sense that every athlete is going to be different. Every human is going to not only a have a different amount of baked in DNA, like genetic traits and like skills or lack of skills or talents or lack of talents. But everybody comes with their own set of baked in habits. Even if they've never played tennis before, you've moved throughout the world for X number of decades and picked up certain ways that you stand and whether your feet are flat or pronated or whether or not your posture is, is generally sound or not and how well you've trained your eye-hand coordination through other disciplines other than tennis. And there's a, literally a million different variables that all coalesce and, and come together that make the person standing across the net for me. So I have a very loose like idea in my head of, okay, if they're not using their kinetic chain properly and they're currently not rotating their body well and they're arming their forehand, I have a set routine that I know has worked frequently in the past, but I may have to explain it completely different. And I may have to use some other analogy based on the fact that they were a competitive you know, golfer or they have no athletic background at all. So I need to relate it to something completely non-sports related. And so uh, we can definitely talk about progressions and learning stages and stuff like that and how I think about that. But I hold that pretty loosely as I work with each individual student and start off with maybe my plan A, but I'm very quick to abandon and try different stuff if it's obviously not clicking out of the gate. Yeah. And so let's use a hypothetical student. So let's say there's somebody who like maybe has messed around as a kid playing tennis, but really hasn't touched a racket in a long time, but is like you know, somebody who like me played a different sport like basketball, but is like aging out of that sport. So they're like trying to figure out, all right, like what sport can I do late into life? And they obviously look at all the data on tennis and say, this is a good sport to actually pick up midlife or in and around midlife. And let's say this person lives somewhere where they're like near courts, like they're in the suburbs, you know, Westchester or something. And 
they've got like four to five hours a week to devote. And this is their first year and they're planning out their year. Like, like in broad strokes, how, how would you suggest they think about that year? For me, my experience with my students is very broadly speaking, they fall into two different buckets. Bucket number one is somebody who comes to spend time with me because they have like a nemesis at their club <laughs> or they have like a, a club championship coming up in a couple months. And they're like, listen, I don't care what it takes. You need to tell me like, this is how I'm losing these points right now. And this is how I keep losing to, to Steve. And there's no way he's as, he's not as good of an athlete as me. His strokes are terrible, but I keep losing over and over. And so it's like a specific objective that they have in mind. And it doesn't really especially matter to them what path it is that we take as long as they get to that objective and it's relatively near term. Now, do you like those types of students? Like when you get a student like that, are you like, oh, this is great because they have a goal and it's very tangible or are you like, ah, not another one of these? So I think everybody starts off as that kind of student. So I respect the fact that most people, whether they realize it or not, have a relatively short time horizon that they're trying to optimize for. And I think that's most people's default until they go deep enough in the game that they realize how big of an ask they actually just made. If they're, a, <laughs> let's say, a 3-5, which for people listening, that's like the, the median like level in tennis. Most tennis players are a 3-5 level. So if somebody comes to me as a 3-5 and they're like, I want to win my club championship or whatever, my area like league like season at 4.0. On the surface, that sounds like, okay, that's one level. It goes, it, like in tennis, it goes from, in the United States anyway, 3-0, 3-5, 3-5 to 4-0, and then 4-5, 5-0. And so it's like in 0.5 increments. And almost maybe because of how it's set up, because we think of those as one level increments, people don't think that's a, that's a very big ask. But the reality is it takes a complete overwrite of like all of your fundamental habits to go from 3-5 to 4-0. It's actually in the background, 50 levels, like in other words, like to the hundredth, uh, like decimal point from three, five to four is 50 levels in the like computer system based on the algorithm, whether you win or lose, you either go up or you go down and you have to make your way up 50 levels to get up one level in tennis. So when people come to me and they have a, a relatively short, what they think is a short term goal, by the time we're done after a day or two, it's like their eyes are really big. They're kind of like deer in headlights look because they've just processed so much information and it's starting to dawn on them by the end of day one that, holy crap, I have a lot of work to do. And so I would say 80% of people that come in the door for me are relatively short time horizon minded. And by the end, they're thinking more medium to long term. And if somebody is like, listen, 10 years from now, I want to go from three, five, to four or five, that I think is, you know, something that's a little bit easier to sink our teeth into. And we can start planning out uh, periodization of, okay, let's, let's try to shore up like weaknesses right away. We don't have to just focus on strengths. If they wanted to like play the best possible in the upcoming, you know, club championship at three months from now, there's not really much point in trying to fix your weaknesses because we don't have time for that. We need to prioritize like what you can already do relatively well and optimize and build a game plan around it. And so it's kind of, as I mentioned earlier, two different buckets, like more short term versus somebody who's very big picture, very mastery focused, like more interested in the process than they are the the actual like outcome or the number next to their game. That's a big ask as a coach. There's not a whole lot of people out there that have that perspective. And if people come in with that perspective, I obviously I love spending time with them and it's super fulfilling. 
But I also really love taking somebody who's more short-term mindset and kind of opening the door to them towards more of a mastery mindset. And is it fair to say going from novice to three, five, which is essentially like the past year and a half of my life, if it's anything like surfing, and definitely this is what I've experienced in tennis, although it's been a relatively intense year and a half, these early movements go so much faster than when you hit intermediate and you're trying to go from intermediate to anywhere above it can take forever. Like surfing is like this, like where I got to the equivalent of a three, three, five in surfing and I may never leave. And I surf pretty consistently, but it's like, I may never leave the three range and become an expert because what it takes to become an expert both requires talent, but also consistent exposure to the conditions and a really, really thoughtful long-term approach that you're talking about. Like if you're putting ranges on it, like person of decent athleticism, who's dedicated, devoting a few hours a week to it. Would you say like two to three years, you can become intermediate if you're very serious, but then like what you said, five to 10 years to, to then go past intermediate if, if you're lucky. Man, that's, that's a really hard question. And I have to know a lot of information to feel like I can give a, a reasonably intelligent response. I need to have a, a general sense of overall athletic ability, like whatever you want to call that talent, genetic, like skill, like th that's something that I can't really, based on a conversation, can't really get a, a very good judge for that. And frankly, I think the average individual doesn't have a very good awareness of where they fall on that spectrum either. Yeah. So that's a, that's a huge variable. Another huge variable is how many times per week are we training? Another big variable is during that training, I'm putting training in air quotes now, are we playing matches or are we actually working on developing and honing skills and actually making better habits subconscious versus just repeating what I'm already good at and getting incrementally better? Because here's the reality. The jump from in tennis, again, one level, put air quotes, to actually 50 levels, the difference between a entry level 3-5 player and a top of the 3-5 spectrum is a 6-0-6-0 match meaning you mm -hmm. don't win a game. Yeah. So it's it's actually possible to be a 3-5 player, play another 3-5 player and get beat 0 and 0 and there's nothing, there's no sandbagging going on, nothing nefarious, like nobody's like holding back or like cheating in the system or anything like that. So we're talking about going from 3-5 to 4-5, which I I pulled up, it's a it's a nice smooth like bell curve. 4-5, we're talking about 9% of amateur tennis players. That's a pretty small chunk of like the overall skill levels. So to go from 3.5 to 4.0, which is 25% of the whole spectrum of tennis players, we're talking about 6.0, 6.0 difference. And then that 4.0 player gets beat 6.0, 6.0 by the, by the 4.5 player, like easily. So I need to know like core athleticism and talent level. I need to know how frequently are you willing to invest in training? I need to know, are you willing to use that time for making fundamental changes, aka being really uncomfortable at things that doesn't feel like there's, there's no chance this is possibly correct and actually invest in that versus having fun of going out and just playing matches. Those three are probably the, the big three. Quality of time, in essence, quality of time, quantity of time, and then innate ability or talent level. It makes sense. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the margins of victory involved here. One really interesting part of your book is when you talk about how, even at the pro level, what we think as like dominant players are 
actually, like when you talk about the elite player playing an elite player, those matches are decided by so few points. You want to talk a little bit about that? I know it's like a little bit of an aside, but I thought this was fascinating data that I, I had never seen before. Yeah, it is. Basically, at the top level of professional tennis, if you can win half your points, you're good. You can make a whole career and do really well if you win half your points. If you can win 51 or 52% of your points in any given year, you're making it pretty far in tournaments and you're probably going to be like a you know top whatever, 20, 30, 40 player, which means you're doing really well. But if you can win 55% of your points, you just crush the entire rest of the field. And nobody really goes above 55%. Nadal, the year, Nadal at the French. It was like the, the most extreme example possible. Any, anybody who knows anything about tennis knows that Nadal doesn't lose on clay, which the French Open is the Grand Slam each year that's played on that surface, on a, on a clay court. And he's won 99% of his matches over his career on clay, but only won 55% of his points. So... Almost half the time, he's losing individual points, and yet he almost never loses a match. And somewhere in between 50 and 55% is like the whole spectrum of being successful or not successful at the professional level. And that extrapolates out to the rest of us as well. If you play another 3-5 player and you can win 51% of the points, it's very difficult to lose that match. And random aside, you can actually win 49% of the points and still win the match based on which of the points you win. That's another kind of unique uh, part about tennis. Number one, there is no clock. There are no periods. There is no, you can't like get a big lead and then run down the, the clock. You have to actually win a certain number of points. And the other part of it is the percentages are so close that if you take your foot off the gas for even five or 10 minutes, it's incredibly difficult to come out on top if you and your and your opponent are relatively closely matched. Yeah, and in your book, you basically, I think, reframe a, a few things about what people assume about tennis and about being good at tennis. And I'm gonna, I wanna walk through a few of them because I think they're applicable to people who are just starting out versus people who've been in it for a long time. And I would say the one that stuck out the most to me and the one that I definitely think about a lot is this idea that tennis is a game of mistakes and that our job as tennis players is to actually cause our opponents to make mistakes, basically put them in a position of discomfort. And this is different than I think most people think about tennis because they think about hitting winners, you know, having the pretty shot, basically like hitting the postage stamp shot that's like going to be impossible to hit. But it seems like you, and this is definitely, you know, you mentioned winning ugly before Brad Gilbert. This is a little bit his philosophy at the, at the sort of pro level, but you, you basically argue that, Hey, like you need to understand what your opponent's weaknesses are from the get-go, from when you're warming up and you need to basically craft your game around that. And you have to also look in the mirror, understand your weaknesses and try to avoid being your own worst enemy. This seems like a pretty revolutionary idea, at least based on from what I could see people playing me. Like when I talk about the tournament that I was playing in, the first two rounds I played, the people were unquestionably better than me, but they were trying to hit winners pretty consistently. And this was actually showing up on the serve too, where, you know, there's this guy who it's the best tennis match I ever played in my life. This guy was serving with such heat, but he was missing his first serve pretty consistently. And so if he just had done two second serves, he would have put me in a position to lose, but I think he just kept, he wanted to have that heater, you know? And I think it cost him in the match. This seems to be the one that is hardest to, this is the hardest one to stick, I think, based on at least my friends who play tennis. 
It's very hard. I just had an experience very recently that I'll, I'll come back around to in a second, but to put a, a couple of statistics on it, at the professional level, from top to bottom, the ratio of errors to winners, and just for people listening, a winner means a shot that lands in bounds, and then your opponent doesn't touch it. So it's just a clean winning shot. The other person can't even get a racket on it. And the ratio of errors points that end with somebody making an error, meaning they touch the ball and they can't put it back in play, whether it's their fault or not, versus the points that end in winners at the professional level is two to one. So for every winner that gets hit by a professional player, there's two errors that get made on average across the board. For you and I, like every everyday players, it's about four or five to one of errors to winners. So if you're smart, you should optimize your strategy and your game plan around eliciting those errors. Another uh, coach online, his name is Jorge Capistani. I first heard him say, it's much easier to make your opponent play bad than it is to make yourself play fantastic. (laughs) There's just so many different nuances and facets to the game of tennis. Uh, The mental, the physical, the footwork, the coordination, the, the technique, the tactics, the strategy, the targets. The odds of having all of it dialed in on any given day is almost zero. Out of 100 matches, you can reasonably expect to feel fantastic and like, oh man, this is like the best tennis I can play. Maybe two or three times out of 100 matches. And there's going to be two or three times out of 100 matches where it feels like nothing is working at all. And it's like the most miserable like experience of your life and you, you, you're just depressed and you want to quit. And the other 92 matches are going to be some gradient, some, somewhere on the spectrum in between, either closer to perfect or closer to terrible, but some, some degree of like averageness. So if you take that to heart and you actually believe it, then it stands to reason that if I can just find one thing that my opponent really dislikes and just make them do it again and again and again, it's not even really a choice whether or not they're going to have a good day of tennis. And that is kind of, should, in a nutshell, be your, your mindset. How do I make them play poorly? Not how do I figure out how to optimize my game to play fantastic? So I was just in New York. I, I just went to the, the WTA semifinals. And the first match was, I don't know if you follow tennis, but Coco Goff, who who won the tournament, is being coached by Brad Gilbert currently. She played one of the highest IQ, like most intelligent matches I've ever seen in the first women's semifinal. And I wrote a, a piece about it. And I, I have all these like uh, screenshotted comments from people being like, I thought it was like the worst match ever. Like they weren't hitting the ball hard. There, there wasn't like any highlight shots. Like it felt to me like they were both playing well below their their level. The difference is Coco did it intentionally in order to disrupt the rhythm of her opponent who wanted hard shots to be able to send back towards her opponent. And so from a like very surface level perspective, yeah, they both didn't play well, but one of them did it deliberately to the other one to bring her level down. And it was effective. And she did it in the final as well to, to win the US Open. But the the second match was kind of a classic, like bash fest, both both players trying to to hit lines. And the reaction of the fans was so much more exuberant in the second match, even though the errors were off the charts. And they were going for ridiculous like shots and making a lot of errors. When they did land, everybody was like high-fiving and like, oh, and like it was like the slam dunk. Which match was this? Sabalenka against Madison Keys. Oh, yeah. So the two matches back to back were extremely 
contrasting. And the first one to me was like super satisfying, but most people felt like the level was very low. And the second one, everybody was high-fiving and I was kind of rolling my eyes the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, and, and bringing it down to the sort of this, this level of like the three to three, five type of level of tennis, what are some just like common ways that people like sort of like if you're lining up against somebody, you're practicing and then you're in your first few points, like what should people be looking out for when they're thinking of what even, I think a lot of people don't even know what a weakness is, you know, like how do I even view a weakness? How do I even spot a weakness on the tennis court? So you're generally allotted five or 10 minutes to warm up. Tennis is unique in that you actually help your opponent get ready for the match. It's pretty unusual in sports that you go out and you don't see that in American football or, or European football or baseball. Like you, you don't help the other team like get ready, but in tennis you do. So it's a great opportunity to kind of poke and prod a little bit. And I would recommend people try different heights of shot. Most players want the ball in what uh, baseball here in the United States, we would call the strike zone, like somewhere between like the knees and the chest is generally going to be most comfortable for just about any athlete in a striking sport. Uh, of any kind. So trying different heights can really open up a lot of doors and give you a lot of information to work with. Some players are going to have no problem with a really low ball or a really high ball and other players are going to absolutely hate it. Different depths, it's generally viewed as like deeper is better, but a lot of times the vertical movement forwards is really poor for players as well. It's really classic weakness for players around the three three five level to hate what we call short sitters, like a ball that bounces right in the middle of the court, doesn't really have any strong characteristics. It's just kind of floating and sitting there. doesn't have a lot of its own pace. And a lot of players around the 3-5 level absolutely hate that shot because they find themselves in the middle of nowhere, having to generate all their own pace and momentum on the ball. And it results in a lot of errors. So different heights is big, different depths is big, hit some higher and deeper, see if they can move back effectively, hit some lower and shorter, see if they let it bounce twice or they actually try to get it or they try to get it short and it's really awkward and uncomfortable. Spins is a third one. If you have the ability to hit a flat ball or a topspin ball or a slice ball, those are great varieties to try. What just about everybody tries that's probably the least effective and would be number four is lateral movement right and left. When you see players go out and practice, they generally do a lot of that. They'll like feed down the middle, maybe play it out. And they're just kind of like hitting forehands and backhands back and forth. And when you're practicing with somebody, it's kind of seen as good manners to like give them some rhythm and give them some timing. And so both players kind of end up hitting like in the same zone of height and speed and depth and spin. And so when you go play a real match and somebody disrupts that, rhythm and that timing and that tempo, there's a probably a specific way for every opponent you play that will most disrupt their flow and most disrupt their rhythm. And in general, players practice right and left the most. They don't practice up and back nearly as much. Uh, they don't practice high and low nearly as much. And they don't practice receiving topspin then backspin very much either. So that's kind of your four like geometrical ways to think about it and pretty simple framework to, to try different approaches. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. One other thing that is a little bit counterintuitive that you have in your book is the sense that there is no ball. You kind of advise people not to necessarily look to hit the ball, but almost hit through the ball. Can you explain? Yeah. It's not even hit through. Like I, and it, maybe it's a little bit too woo woo, but the idea is to swing as if the ball is literally not there at all, which is very different than the idea of hitting through. When you ask somebody to hit through a ball, you're still acknowledging that a collision is going to take place. 
And when stuff collides and you're a human, it's very problematic. Our, our instinct is to brace and like prepare ourselves for that impact by unfortunately, like bracing ourselves against it, which will lead the body to be incredibly inefficient, not move smoothly, not be able to produce energy and flow it into the ball. It's basically the opposite of what we need to play good quality, like fundamental tennis. So the title of the book was Almost There Is No Ball because it's just such a core like idea in the book around technique. And I, I got it from a golf coach. I used to be really into golf and a big like world renowned coach was asked, what's the number one mistake that amateur golfers make? And his answer was, they try to hit the ball. They try to hit it. And so that automatically leads to like a moment of tightness and tension and like abrupt acceleration and then deceleration right around the moment of impact, which is exactly when we need to be the most flowing and smooth and efficient and allowing the racket to move freely instead of inhibiting its movement. So I, I spent a lot of time, especially... I don't want to overgeneralize, but I would say especially players who maybe don't have as much athletic intuition, didn't play a sport when they were a child, and now they've picked up tennis as an adult, and it's their first ever foray into athletics at all. If you didn't spend any time as an adolescent or a young child getting hit by stuff and hitting stuff, then the whole idea of that collision happening, I think, just causes people to wince and tighten and like brace. And if that's your your knee-jerk response every time the ball comes to hit your racket, the whole game is unbelievably difficult to get good at because that tightness and tension gets in the way of the way your body and the racket is supposed to move. And you have one uh, drill that I think is particularly fascinating that I want to try, which is get a tennis racket without strings, right? Yeah. And and basically try to hit through a ball, right, without the strings. Tell me why that's important. It's just the sensation of the, the racket not stopping when it sort of comes into contact with the ball. Yeah, it's even one step deeper than that. I just had a student a couple of days ago who she was very much like fighting against the ball on her volleys, which in tennis, that means you're hitting the ball out of the air before the ball bounces. And I got a racket with no strings for her. I had the ball machine feed shots like towards her and had her hold the racket out to the side where the ball machine was hit. There was no like change in direction or speed. It was exact same like shot every single time and told her, I want you to hold the racket behind the incoming ball, let the ball go through the racket and don't do anything. Just allow the racket to be there. Hmm. And she couldn't do it. She could <laughs> not hold the racket there and let the ball pass through it without instinctively shoving the racket forwards towards the incoming ball, even though her brain knew, her conscious knew, consciousness knew that there would be no collision. Her subconscious was so ready to like brace for it and do something about it. We didn't sit on it for very long. And I, I showed her several iterations. She got better and better and better at it. Like at first she moved it like a foot through the ball, even though she knew nothing was touching anything, but she still moved the racket a foot her first like 20 times, called her over, showed her, listen, like you think you're doing nothing, but look at this. You're moving, you're essentially swinging the racket at the ball. So she calmed it down to maybe six inches calmed it down again to an inch or two. We never quite got her to just hold it there and do nothing. <laughs> That's within the context of asking a student to not propel the racket or accelerate it at all. When you put that instinct into the middle of a big, long, what should be a fluid, circular, smooth motion, like a forehand 
ground stroke or a serve, it compounds exponentially because we're already doing all this other effort and like acceleration with the rest of the body. And so the hand and the arm just naturally want to follow suit and just do lots of work. But it's the hand and the arm that need to be most relaxed to deliver all of that energy and power that is supposed to be delivered by the big parts of the body. So yeah, I do a lot of, I do a lot of what I call fake tosses where a student is practicing a new technique and I'll toss a ball towards them, but not to them so that they can see the ball bounce and go past them while they practice their new technique, but they're not supposed to move towards the ball or hit the ball. It's just a timing mechanism so that the ball is in their vision and like on their radar. And 50 to 75% of the time, when I throw a ball somewhere on the court and they're not even hitting it, a student will still go back to their old habit, even though they're not even hitting the ball. So they'll, without a ball, shadow it, meaning no ball at all. Just, okay, here, please mimic me. Let's move our body correctly in the right order. They get it. They're like, okay, cool. I understand. And then I'll toss a ball 10 feet to the side and say, now practice that movement, please. And they will go back to their old forehand or their old backhand because the subconscious just is like, oh, sweet ball. Like it's time. And it, it calls back the familiar, repeatable, that's like home base for them. Whatever backhand they've hit for the last 10 years, they just go back to the old one just because the ball is there, even if they're not hitting it. So how do you break that? Obviously the drill itself is meant to break that. Is it... Because I think I struggle with what a lot of people struggle. I mean, the whole inner game of tennis book, I think, is kind of meant to be an antidote to to this sort of phenomenon of like, I'm drilling and then I'm doing it right. And then I get in a match and I inevitably just when it when it when the, the pressure and the pace of the moment and the fatigue of a match comes, I just either forget or can't or whatever. Like what what's your sort of approach to translating like, cause obviously that's like the, where the, the muscle memory isn't even quite translating yet in the drill, but like going from the position of the drill and varying the drill where then the old habits show up to then eventually getting somebody to a match, like, you know, a good, let's, we could use maybe backhand technique as probably preparing early on a backhand and whatever else, like we want to talk about backhand wise, like at a high level, like, do you have like a, a sort of unique approach to that or is it just time and feedback? I wish it was that simple. I wish it was only time and feedback. Uh, so this is where going back to your question about, well, how long should it reasonably take to, you know, make it up to four or five level? This is where innate talents, if you, I put it in air quotes up, this is where innate like talent or athletic ability comes into play. If I'm playing with an already very trained individual who has developed a high amount of mastery in some other skill and has a large amount of physical kinesthetic awareness and coordination and ability to control his or her, you know, movements and like what the racket is doing. It happens sometimes where people have wildly inefficient habits and I'll show them, this is what you're doing. This is what you should do. And they say, oh, okay. And then they <laughs> pretty much just go out there and do it. Now, this is, this is like a very tiny minority of like the human population, but it does exist. And I think by and large, tennis is taught as if that should be kind of the expectation that mm. if I give you the right information and enough balls, you should be able to just do it like, like Nike said. And <laughs> that sounds unbelievably attractive and sexy and it makes a great slogan, but it's not real life. In real life, for the vast majority of people, there's somewhere in between 
zero, what I would call progressions, like telling a human, do it this way, please. And then the human just does it that way is just a zero to one moment. Like there's no intermediary step required. For a normal person, I would say the average fundamental like flaw fix that I do with a student, we're probably taking about four or five intermediary steps between when I explain to them, this is what you're doing and this is what you're supposed to do. And they're able to actually do it with a ball coming towards them. Still not pressure of like competition and I'm not feeding a difficult ball, just a ball coming towards them and being able to very closely replicate the good movement that we just decided like it would be much better to do it like Roger Federer, right? Or Serena Williams. Yes. Okay. Like, so let's move our shoulders like in this direction. The average person takes about four or five intermediary steps. Usually step number one is let's repeat it slowly and smoothly with no ball in the picture at all. Can you slowly and smoothly with, maybe we'll start with uh, checkpoints. So slowly and smoothly, but we're stopping and pausing in like three key positions throughout the movement. So that's step one, slow, smooth repetitions, no ball with checkpoints at like critical moments. Then step two might be slow and smooth with no checkpoints. Okay, now make it continuous, still no ball, but now you have to keep everything moving and flowing and do it correctly. Step three might be a fake toss where great, you can do it slowly and smoothly with, with no ball. Now I'm going to toss a ball and just introduce a ball into the picture, but put it off to the side and you don't have to worry about hitting it yet. Step four might be great. You can do it with the fake toss. Now I'm going to feed you an easy toss close to the net. So there's not much distance or range that the ball is traveling, not much judgment or like distance recognition or like bounce or spin recognition. It's right close to the net. It's a soft, slow toss. And then I do it from the service line, which is the line in the middle of the court. Then maybe I'll move them back to halfway between the service line and the baseline once they show they can do it from the service line. And then maybe back to the baseline once they show me they can do it from no man's land. And so there's six steps. If we get to step six and they're back on the baseline hitting their new forehand with me actually giving them a ball and they're actually hitting it and they're doing it right. And that maybe would take like an hour to two hours. That's a huge accomplishment for a player. And I would say that's pretty normal. That's, that's pretty average. Sometimes we get stuck on progression number three and they could totally do it on challenge level two. But for whatever reason, what's happening in challenge level three just totally shuts them down and they go back to the old habit. Now I have to get creative and find some other intermediary step between two and three. That's a little bit more challenged than two, but not quite as much as three. And that's where the kind of the art comes into play. And it's my job as the coach to figure out like what is the exact level of challenge that can help my student make a little step forward and then a little step forward and a little step forward. Yeah. I think also like when you talk about the matches, I think you advocate for this and I know Gilbert does too, is like taking extensive notes after matches and after even just hitting around, just like building an awareness, like a self-awareness. And if you combine that with what you talk about with video, right? Like if you're, if you at least know it in your practice session with you or another pro, and you know what good looks like, even if you can't replicate it. And then you're videoing yourself and taking notes on yourself and just knowing when you're not there. Like if you look at Alcaraz, for example, you know, people talk about his athleticism, et cetera, whatever. But one thing I think is noticeable about him, and I know a lot of great tennis players do this. I tend to see it a little bit more with him, at least to my eye, is when he messes up early in a match, 
he's kind of like does these little practice strokes in the corner. If you've ever seen it, he's kind of talking to himself and as opposed to like the people who are like screaming at their corner or whatever, he's like whispering to himself and like doing the motions almost like, like an intermediate would. He's like, oh yeah, I kind of screwed that up. And he's got this like methodical approach to critiquing his own game that I think is, is really strong for him. Okay, I could talk to you forever. I want to be respectful of your time. Last thing as we close out, for people who haven't yet made tennis a part of their life and they're thinking about, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Give us the case for tennis, like for people who are just thinking about, all right, what's the hobby I want to sort of pursue in the second phase of my life? Why tennis? So I, I mentioned earlier, I've been around the game for, for 30 years, 10 years, pretty hardcore, as hardcore as I could be given my financial means, my family's financial means as a student and now 20 years as a, as somebody professionally in the sport. And the, the most common question I get, uh, kudos to you for not asking me this question. The most common question I get asked is, what happens when you run out of stuff to to talk about? Like, what are you going to do when you've already made a video about every topic? When they hear- <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, not that guy. I'll watch every video <laughs> you put out. When they hear I've made 6,000 videos, it's like they can't even comprehend. Um, like, how do you, you've, you've, for sure, you've run out of stuff to talk about by now, right? And I'm telling you every time, every time without qualification, I step onto a tennis court with another student. I learn some other insight about something based on their reaction to my explanations or the habits that they had, or the, they asked me a question like a certain way that nobody's ever asked before. And so I have to explain it a different way. That's like, wow, that's like a way better way of thinking about it. And I don't know, there's something for me about a skill that's impossible to master. That's very alluring uh, to me, <laughs> almost to like an obsessive level where for me personally, I, I've watched myself play more than 99.99% of humans have ever watched themselves play. A part of my content is we record matches. We do like commentary, like a fun production and publish it like for our audience. And I've watched myself play a lot of matches and I'm self-aware enough to know that I have very hard capped like personal like limitations on my own athleticism and like the skills that just that are baked into myself, like my, my DNA. And yet there's just something so attractive for me. Now, if this sounds terrible to you, then, then go play pickleball because <laughs> pickleball is, is oh, like way easier. It's the same basic skill set, but on three X less real estate. And so the, the energy output, the intensity is very different. The challenge to like your eye-hand coordination and your positioning and your movement and your anticipation is completely different. And I'm, I'm actually not bashing on pickleball. Like I've, I've played it. It's a lot of fun. Like it's great. I love all paddle and like racket sports. Like I'm addicted to all of them. It is a battle though. I was just up in Maine where I was at the YMCA in Booth Bay and they have two beautiful indoor tennis courts. And this was on a Saturday and they were giving me a tour of the YMCA and the pickleballers had taken over both of these beautiful <laughs> tennis courts. And I literally said to the guy, I was like, this is, I can't belong to this Y. <laughs> I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I'm not here to fight with the pickleballers over this real estate. Cause they, they roll deeper than we do most of the time. It's like, they, they're, they do. I, I don't want to call them bullies, but they're, they have numbers. They have numbers that we don't in a lot of cities. That's a whole other conversation we could, we could have some other time, but uh, and like long story short, I think it's, it's on tennis. Like tennis needs to have that level of excitement and activity and like passion 
around it or else I, I think it's like tennis's own fault that pickleball is taking over spaces. But like, I love ping pong. I love platform tennis. I love pop tennis. I love pickleball. I love badminton. I love racquetball. I love all of those games, but I keep coming back to tennis because I feel like it's such an evenly balanced split between the emotional and the psychological and the raw, like physical aerobic and anaerobic challenge and like strength and judgment and anticipation and technique, just like the movements and the mechanics of like all the different strokes. And it's just limitless. And so that's my pitch for for tennis. For some people, if you're listeners, that probably sounds fantastic for the average person. That sounds like a nightmare. And that's just kind of what I'm after when I look for an activity personally. That's amazing. Yeah. And please keep making videos. I'm the kind of guy, I didn't, I haven't looked at your essential tennis gated content now. So I'm going to go check that out. I'm the kind of guy I've now, I've only been playing tennis for a year and a half and I've watched just to give you an idea, five videos alone on how to hit a one-handed backhand when the ball is high. And cause it's like such a pain, like, as you Tough, know, yeah. like it with the one-handed backhand. So I get, I, I watched anything I could find related to issues that I find. And I think that's one of the beauties of being in this YouTube era is that you could take advantage of experts like you who have been so generous with your, your content. So thank you so much, everybody. First of all, like I know a lot of you listeners play tennis, check out Essential Tennis, the book, and then Essential Tennis, the site and the YouTube page. I will be joining the gated content too, but you could start on the YouTube channel. As Ian said, there's a ton of stuff on there, a ton of excellent stuff, but definitely read the book. I can't say enough. And I just want to say like, I, I reached out to Ian because this was the best book I found on tennis and definitely one of the best sporting how-to guides I've ever read before. It is it's truly comprehensive and extremely thoughtful and accessible for people at different steps of the game. So Ian, thank you for being with us and thank you for sharing your insights on, on such a beautiful game. My pleasure, Ravi. I love having conversations like this with, with people who have a passion for improvement and mastery. So kudos to you for, for putting yourself out of your comfort zone so frequently <laughs> and embracing the challenge of the unknown and just like doing the best you can. Man, that really always inspires me a lot. So keep doing the great work you're doing and I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast network. You could follow all of the branches podcasts at at the branch media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.